It's a bright evening as the graduates of IADT's animation course head to the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin to showcase their work after four long years. You take a drawing and you just bring it to life. It's just amazing. It just springs to life. It's really, I just find it really satisfying making things move and just making things... I suppose it sounds so corny, but I just love making things like come alive and things like that. Originally, I started working in film and then kind of found it difficult to get work. So decided to go back to college and instead of doing film, decided to take something I thought would be a bit more challenging. So I went into animation then instead. And it turned out to be a lot more challenging. Yeah. <laughs> animation is what I like doing because I can tell my story, but I don't have to talk to people. <laughs> That's the big requirement. That's the big requirement, is just being left alone in a corridor to draw for several hours. That's very delightful for me. Very appealing. Sitting here with the families and friends of students watching their animated films on the big screen, smiles plastered across their faces, you can feel the excitement in the room. They're hungry to get out there and get animating, which is good because Ireland has an incredible animation industry. I mean, no one could have imagined that Ireland would be making animated TV shows shown to millions of children all over the world, not to mention all the Oscar nominations. But how did we get here? There's no doubt about it that Walt Disney has got a connections to Ireland. That's Pat Nolan, director of Irish Origins Research Agency in Kilkenny. He is the great-grandson of Arundel Ellis Disney, who was a tenant farmer on some 33 acres in the townland of Rathbeg. He was born about 1801 in that area. He and his family moved to America and eventually settled down in southwestern Ontario, Two generations later, along came Walt. Walter himself was born December 5, 1901. And as they say, in the best of these things, the rest is history. If the rest was history, this would be a much shorter podcast. Who doesn't remember Donald Duck and all of those people? They were part of growing up. We used to get them in comics. But then the big thing was the film, and especially the colour film that they came along. Snow White was his first full-length picture. It's the first one that I remember going to. I was a little boy of, what, seven or eight or something, and we were allowed to go to this I must say, with my father's a little misgivings, he didn't think it was a good idea to be going to film so young. But, you know, as kids, will we persuaded them to do it. And my first memory of it was in the uh, Savoy Cinema, which is now the Watergate Theatre in Kilkenny. Throughout Disney's career, he would have many ties to Ireland. But the most notable is probably his film Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Some time ago, I decided to make an Irish picture, for Ireland is the home of the leprechaun. And the little people have always fascinated me. Walt, you are a perfectionist. You want to do everything right. Well, yes, but... Now you have a nimble mind. You go to Ireland. Learn something. And in November 1946, he did just that. He's Walt Disney. And he's here with Mrs. Disney to look for a leprechaun. The Irish fairy who keeps an eye on the hidden gold. Mr. Disney, what, give me some more details of your leprechaun hunt. Well, uh, I, I just hope that I can find that leprechaun with the uh, pot of gold because I could really use that in Hollywood with <laughs> the cost of production going up the way it is. 
14 years later, Darby O'Gill premiered in Ireland, the first Disney film to get its debut showing outside the US. I brought a Mr. Disney here to see you, sir. Disney? I know the Dailies, the Duffies, the Donovans, the Devlins, the Dooleys, the Darties, but Disney, no. I don't know any Disney, so good night, sir. Your Majesty, nevertheless, I am half Irish. Walt Disney died in 1966, the same year his company released The Fighting Prince of Donegal, a live-action feature film about the 16th-century Irish prince Red Hugh O'Donnell. My son is the O'Donnell now. Hugh has succeeded Hugh. The hour has struck, Lady Aeneen. Do we strike too? Do we fight for Ireland? I can raise a It wasn't to be the last Disney connection to Ireland, though. Roy Disney, Walt's nephew and vice chairman of the company, bought Coolmain Castle in Cork and was a frequent visitor. Here's Thomas Schumacher, former president of animation at Disney. During my time, we were developing an Irish project with, and Roy was leading it. There was a lot of effort around it and it kind of never came together. The only good thing that came out of it is we got to spend enormous amounts of time with Paddy Maloney. And it was going to be a whole chieftain's thing. Yes, I'm Paddy Maloney, piper, <laughs> composer, <laughs> tin whistle player, and uh, founder of the Chieftains, the band the Chieftains. Where did your connection with Disney come in? Because it's kind of, a, you know, for someone, if you just heard it, you might think it's kind of an unusual connection. It is indeed, yeah. I went up to see Roy in in Disneyland, you know. He was showing me the Walt Disney's office, which is his now, or was then, you know. And spectacular stuff all around that. Oh, my goodness, where they're starting projects and doing various projects. And his interest, anyway, was then maybe to do a a documentary on one of the old Irish musical stories, The Children of Lear, I think was mentioned. Unfortunately, it didn't come off. It didn't take place. I think there was something that went a moo went wrong, you know. Thankfully, there was to be another Chieftain's Disney collaboration. And this time, it worked out. There's an album about Winnie the Pooh, and which got nominated for a Grammy, I believe, you know. <laughs> I did some playing, and I played the tune Winnie the Pooh and all that, you know. Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh. The Chieftains also composed an original song about Winnie the Pooh for the album. I composed a little tune, you know, and it goes on and on, you know. And Angus did the words. Angus is Paddy's son. Although they weren't the same as Winnie the Pooh, which he was very familiar with because of our grandsons, you know. And there's posters on the wall of Winnie the Pooh, but it was a little close to the words, you know, so they decided they go just with the melody, which came out on the album as well. In Paddy's office, there is a framed napkin of Mickey Mouse dressed up as Paddy, playing the pipes. There's a girl called Betsy Betos, and she was... Did, you know, Mickey, uh, Mickey and all these guys, you know. And what she did was, she was at Carnegie Hall. And during the show, she did animations of us with the, you know, the characters from the Walt Disney's. All the, you know what I mean? And like, Matt was one 
I was a different one, and Derek was, I don't know. They were tremendous, you know. Unfortunately, they're copyright, so I couldn't use them. I'd love to have used them, you know, yeah. much to the horror of the members of the band. They go mad. <laughs> but to, to have them on a sleeve would have been great, you know. Disney certainly had ancestry in Ireland, but Disney animation doesn't actually feature in our story till much later. So that beggars the question, just how did a little island of mainland Europe become one of the world's leading lights in animation? I'm Liam Garrity. It's time to meet your maker. (coughs) Excuse me. Meet your maker. Around the same time that Walt Disney would have been in his late teens, around 1917, three brothers in County Cork, George, James and Thomas Horgan, were busy filming some of the earliest moving images made in Ireland. The James Horgan story is an example of false starts in the Irish film industry. Steve Woods is a director and also lectures in experimental animation at the National Film School in Dunleary. He also helped set up the Galway Film Flat. James Horgan, who was a very interesting man, he came from a family that ran a local cinema. And they started in the days of the Lumiere brothers and, and they realised that they could turn the projector into a camera, which is actually what, what the Lumiere brothers did. You weren't supposed to, but that didn't stop them. And they started taking a lot of footage of local events in their area and showing them in their local cinema, which was amazing. The brothers would film local events in Yole, County Cork, where their cinema was. They'd film things like people leaving the church because they knew that the locals would be keen to see themselves on the big screen, thus guaranteeing a sold-out show. It was a pretty common gimmick used by early cinema owners. So here we have a projector that is probably made up of two parts. That's Anivo Flynn, head of Irish programming at the Irish Film Institute, which is where we are now. The cam projector was introduced into the cinema in 1917. So it was, we believe, the original projector that was in the, the Horgan Picture Palace in 1917. And then in 1929, the projector was adapted for sound film, a film called The Trial of Mary Duggan, I think was the first sound film to show there. So the original core of the projector was added to with a cam sound house. Now, it was in bits and pieces. We wouldn't have had a clue how to restore it, but a wonderful gentleman called Bernard Matthews, who's one of few members of the Projected Picture Trust in Ireland. Uh, He reconstructed it and did a fine job to a point where he had it working. Um, Now, we haven't ever used it, but Bernard certainly had it working at one stage. It looks... In pretty good nick for <laughs> all its years. Yes, it is. Yeah, you know, we're very proud of it. It's, 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 it's a lovely addition to, to the space, I think. And people may be familiar with it. Either they peep it through the carousing area in the IFA or if they've used the library here, they'll, they'll be very familiar with it. James Horgan also experimented with photography and models. And that's what led to the earliest surviving piece of Irish animation. He began to experiment in animation and he made a little six minute animation of the old clock tower hopping around. The surviving clip kind of reminds me of a Monty Python animation. It's the old clock tower, which suddenly starts spinning around before walking off the street entirely, coming back and turning upside down, only to spin around on its spike like a spinning top. It lasts for about 12 seconds. 
he he never f- developed the animation further, and his closest relative, also called James, Jim Jim Horgan, in Barner Spittle in West of Ireland, stored all the stuff. So Jim responded to our call for deposit of films. He had this collection of films, which I, I don't recall did he understand how fragile they were, but he got in touch with us, and I went down to visit him in Ferbo in Galway. I was at the Galway Film Flat at the time, one of the early flats, if not the first flat, and I hired a bicycle in Galway and cycled out to Ferbo in the heat of the boiling sun. I was absolutely exhausted when I got there. But Jim and his lovely wife greeted me warmly and I went to have a look at the film collection with him. And I realised immediately that the collection was nitrate. From that period between 1910 and 1920, the films were on this highly unstable nitrate stock. And, you know, together we understood that this material really needed to come into an archive, really needed to be preserved, duplicated to contemporary acetate stock so that the films wouldn't disappear. And without that kind of intervention, they would, you know, in the most dramatic scenario, they might have spontaneously combusted. But in a less dramatic scenario, they, they simply would have disintegrated to dust. So Jim was absolutely on board with the notion of our taking the films. We sent them over to a laboratory in the UK who would have had the facilities then to transfer from the nitrate stock to modern safety and this happened and we now preserve the the safety films here in the archive. Is that a nerve-wracking experience even just to send them away to be yeah, there was a, a lot of hoops to be jumped through because you're, in, in fact, you know, you're, you're transporting what are classed as low explosives. So there's all sorts of paperwork to be done. And we, I think it was a, probably our first nitrate consignment. So we certainly had to find carriers who were brave enough to carry it by ship across to the UK. And when we were having in the Galway Film Flap, Back in uh, 1989, uh, we were having the very first meeting of animators, actually. And we were talking about having a competition for animation, which happened and became the first competition for animators in Ireland. Sneva Flynn from the archive came in and said, Oh, Steve, you know, you're not going to believe this. I just came across this example of animation. It could be as old as 1909. And it's the old clock tower happening around. It's just amazing. And, and because of that, we decided that that's what we'd use as our, our trophy. It's called the James Horgan Prize, and it's for best animation in the Gulf Film Flat. The next milestone in Irish animation came on the 31st of December 1961 with the launch of Ireland's first television service. I am privileged in being the first to address you on our new service, Televish Éireann. Former Irish President Eamon de Valera introducing Televish Éireann, or as it's known now, RTE. And the reason RTE is a milestone is that it had its own rostrum camera department, which meant it could shoot its own animated titles, and they did. The other thing that arrival of television brought was ads, many of which were animated. And unlike now, there were barely any animators in Ireland in the early 60s. So the foundations were really laid by animators from other countries who came to live and work here. People like Gunther Wolf. It all started back in Germany. Because my dad is of German origin, born and bred in, in uh, Hamburg. That's Jeremy Wolf, Gunther's son who works in visual effects in Paris. Towards the 60s, he started working in animation. He was offered by the company who he was working for in Germany to set up a studio in either two countries, Egypt or Ireland. He settled for Ireland because personally he didn't feel like leaving Europe, so 
that's where I come in. And that's why I'm, I'm Irish and not Egyptian. <laughs> Animation in advertising was something that pleased to, to a lot of companies in, in Ireland. Because basically, animation uh, for my dad did, did not really exist in Ireland in advertising anyway. He, he sort of laid down the groundwork for, for animation in advertising in Ireland. Gunter set up a studio initially in, in Northumberland Road, I think in the early 60s. Steve Woods again. Then moved out to Ardmore, where he had the Gate Lodge in Ardmore, and where he established a film lab, and he had a rostrum camera for shooting animation and dabbled a lot in animation. What his claim to fame is that he sort of developed the first character animation, which was the Lion Tea commercials. These little minstrels that just come out and sing Lion's Tea. Buy Lion's Tea, drink Lion's Tea, love Lion's Tea, Lion's the quality tea. They're politically incorrect now. You know, what he did was he brought he brought something very, very high standard into Ireland. And there was an option there for people to, to learn from him and to acquire skills from him. And so his studio grew and he decided to, instead of sending the films over to London and get them pro- getting them processed over there. So obviously back in the days, it was it was only film. He decided to set up his own processing studio in the studio. So you had rows upon rows of, of huge tanks in which film was processed the whole day, all day long. His studio became a processing company, an animation company, a film company, uh, a Rostrum Stills animation company, because he, he used to animate also on Rostrum. Gradually, uh, it just grew and grew and grew. I'm Paddy Brunach and I'm a film director. Paddy has directed films like Rosie, Viva and I Went Down. I worked for an animator called Gunther Wolf many years ago. Paddy heard a slightly different story as to how Gunther ended up in Ireland. The first day I went to work for Gunther, I knew I was on to a good thing because I, we were sitting outside the bank waiting for the bank to open and I casually asked him, I said, how did you come to Ireland, Gunther? And he said, it was a love affair. And he told me a story about how he had gotten involved with somebody that he shouldn't have gotten involved with and basically had to get out of the country in a hurry. And as sort of his boss owned a house in Ireland and let him come and look after this big house in Limerick, I think, with horses for six months as a way that Gunther was able to get out of the country. I don't know fully the trouble or whatever it was about, but... And I just thought, <laughs> this is my new boss is telling me about uh, his adventures that brought him here in a very intimate and kind of open way. And I said, I think I'm going to enjoy the next six months I'm working with him. Gunther's son, Jeremy, effectively grew up in his father's studio. Get out of school early and, you know, he didn't, we didn't always have a babysitter, which, which was our neighbour. And so he said, well, OK, we'll, we'll come with me to the studio then. He took me to every single department, uh, you know, showed me, well, what, what a dark room is. You know, OK, well, this is how we process film. And I was probably five, six. You know, the rostrum, the camera going up and down, you know, six metres. And, uh, you know, you had to wear gloves. Yeah, everything was... It's, it was like a, it was like a town, you know, like a, like a, a buzzing town with, with, you know, going in the editing suites with, with, you know, instead of clothes hanging from lines, it was, it was film, you know. It had an impact on the young Jeremy. I studied art and uh, went to art school for five years. I didn't intend at all to, to, to end up in this field, but I think 
uh, I think my dad got me to. Uh, <laughs> I, I hung around my dad's studio for too long for not being in this field uh, uh, in the end, and hence I've been in this field for over 10 years now. It's it's a very deeply memorable experience being in that studio. Gonta was very bohemian and was kind of an enthusiast, excitable in the, in the best possible way, liked people and liked to engage with where they were and what they were interested in. And often you'd get lots of different types of people calling in to work there. You know, a very eclectic mix of people, people who believed in the Holy Grail, um, <laughs> Uh, odd, odd mixes of people based, I think, based on his own childhood. And he, in Germany, he grew up in Germany and was kind of came of age at the end of the Second World War, I suppose. That kind of probably gave him a sort of, I don't, I don't know, he, I think he met a lot of interesting and eclectic people at that stage and he always wanted to have a bit of that in his life. I mean, Gunther essentially was an artist and he could turn his hand to a lot of different things and make a lot of, of different things. And he became a businessman. I'm not so, so sure how great a businessman he was, but he was able to turn his hand to a lot of different things, whether that be fixing a processing film, processing machine in a laboratory, to being a Rostrum cameraman and doing effects work in that, to model making and model animation, or cell animation, traditional cell animation. And he was able to do all of those things and did all of them with a kind of excitement and conviction and passion. In an odd way, when I arrived, I think I came after a very fallow period for Gunther. And... Within a couple of weeks, he got a job doing an animated commercial for Arienta. So I became a lucky charm for him in some way, which probably in some way flipped the experience for me a little bit in, in that he gave me a lot more uh, responsibility maybe than I, than I should have been given. So we did an animated commercial for Arienta, which involved kind of, one, I remember one shot was like a Big Ben flying through the air. So we had to make models of Big Ben and then did the photo shoot of that flying on a trajectory. And then they traced that and, and built drawings out of that. And it was kind of, I suppose... It sort of had a, the animation, as far as I remember, had a kind of crayony kind of feel off of it and a loose feel, a quite impressionistic feel. And it was, it was very, as far as I remember, it was a lovely piece. I remember we did something quite different for Musgraves, which, which was, is the antecedent of super value. And they had a, a line of, I think it was either red label or red pack, their own branded line of, of different goods. So we had to do, it was a model animation. So for example, I remember doing a sequence of, of cornflakes exploding out of a packet into a bowl. Uh, we had to build a set around that. And I remember recycling an old fan that had been as part of, I think some part of the processing equipment in the laboratory where we built this set on top of the fan that could blow the cornflakes out of the packet and then we reversed them. So there was a lot of stuff like that, building ovens where you could do kind of stop motion of bread. Gunther was always very inventive and clever and did it a lot of the stuff himself. So from my point of view, 
you know, as somebody entering into the film business, suddenly you were getting a kind of very close-up view of a lot of different techniques, a lot of different, I suppose, ways to invent worlds. All good things, though, eventually come to an end. By the time I got to work with Gunther, there was a real lull in the film industry here. I remember at the time we were, our building was at the entrance to Ardmore Studios. There was a sort of really dodgy, probably third-rate film called Rawhead Rex was being made. And I think it was the only film that was made in a, like a two-year period, you know? What's more, it saw me, this thing. So that's where the industry was at that time, that I would remember a film called Rawhead Rex, you know, being made here, because there was nothing else being made. And the idea that it's come to where it is now both in the live action, but particularly the animation sector, which has completely blossomed and gone from strength to strength. I think it would have been hard in some ways for Gunther to imagine that, that it sort of went from a a complete backwater that he found a niche in and helped stimulate to being a centre of animation. Animation Island, a Meet Your Maker miniseries, continues next week and for the next several weeks telling the epic story of the animation industry in Ireland. The animation students you heard at the top of the show were Melissa Malone, Katie O'Mara, Anthea West and Daniel Staines. Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show... Tell a friend about it or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to me and really helps the show. And speaking of helping the show, if you want to get access to all sorts of Meet Your Maker goodies, you can do that by subscribing to patreon.com forward slash meetyourmaker. Starting at a mere $1 a month, there are several tiers where you can grab yourself behind the scenes photos and images for every episode. You can hear regular bonus episodes called Meet Your Maker Minis, featuring great interviews and audio. You can get a Meet Your Maker badge, and you can even get a shout-out right here in the credits section. Supporting me through Patreon makes this show happen. So if you enjoy it, please consider subscribing, even for a dollar a month. Okay, that's it. Join me next week for part two of Animation Island. Meet Your Maker is a member of The Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts, as is my podcast, the Dublin Story Slam podcast. See all our shows on thewarren.ie.